Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. So if, if you've heard one thing about the legacy of the 2011 Arab Spring, it's probably that Tunisia is the only success story. The only country that had a revolution then that managed to sustain a transition to democracy over the course of the past 10 years. But now in the past week, a move by the president to consolidate power in his own hands, to fire the prime minister and dismiss parliament, has raised questions about, you know, just how successful this transition actually was. Is Tunisia about to fall back into some kind of autocracy? Or is it going to make it through what seems like a real crisis for this relatively young democracy? That's what we're going to talk about today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here with the two gens, Williams and Kirby. I almost said Williams and Ward. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jens, how are you doing this fine morning? Hello. Hi. I'm all right. (laughs) <laughs> I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I like that you both initially, I don't know if this is going to make it onto the final record, but I, I like that you both initially said something at the same time. <laughs> like the gens, the gens, as you coexist on Worldly, yes. are slowly merging. Into one. Yeah, to be one master gen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The the one gen to rule yeah. them all is going to be here on the podcast. Love it. So, Kirby, why don't you start talking to us a little bit about like literally what happened uh, in the past week or so in Tunisia, because it's it's the details are actually pretty important to understanding the situation, especially the big question as to whether this is like a coup or something else. Yeah. So to kind of set the scene a little bit, um, Tunisia is coming through uh, its worst wave of the coronavirus pandemic right now and also dealing with severe economic problems. These are longstanding, but the coronavirus pandemic, of course, has made them way, way worse. And so there's been a lot of discontent and dissatisfaction within Tunisia about the kind of lack of action by the government to handle these these dual crises. And so there have been protests on the street in recent days. And this culminated in uh, Tunisia's president, Kais Saeed, in basically what he did was he fired the prime minister and he suspended parliament temporarily for 30 days. Now, just a quick side note here, if this sounds confusing, Tunisia's government is kind of set up so that the president has control of security and foreign affairs type of thing. And the prime minister is sort of the head of government. So in control of the domestic ministries. And so Saeed fired him and he fired a bunch of other ministers and basically said, all right, I'm the one in charge. And so basically his justification for doing this was that, you know, there wasn't any action on the pandemic and it was an emergency and he had to sort of take control and shake things up. And he has said that he's going to reinstate the government, but he hasn't really given any sort of specifics. But he did say he was justified in doing so. In addition to sort of the the major things of firing the prime minister and uh, suspending parliament, he also stripped the members of parliament of their, their immunity He also shuttered some news offices, specifically Al Jazeera. He's since continued to fire some ministers. I believe this week he fired the head of the state-run news agency. His sort of general claim is there's been some fraud and corruption, and he kind of needs to stamp it out. And so that has sort of left Tunisia in this holding pattern of, we have this president who's saying he's going to 
you know, he's taking control. He's going to take action. But we don't really know where to go next. And yeah, it's really weird. Jen, you did a really great piece um, speaking with a, an expert, Sarah Yerkes, who has been covering and following Tunisian democracy, you know, since the, the 2011 uprising and the transition. And she mentioned that Kais Saeed, the president, has declared that, you know, he can do this under this one article, Article 80 of the Tunisian constitution that says that, you know, in a state of emergency, essentially, that the president can do something like this. And that normally the constitutional court would decide right? Like if, if this is a coup or not, if this is legal, but the court doesn't have like all of its members because he's been blocking some of them. And so like the court isn't even functional right now. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So essentially the constitutional court, like what would be the equivalent of the Supreme Court that would decide whether these actions were legitimate or not, isn't in place to actually make that decision, which is, I think, a downside of having a pretty new democracy when you don't have all of your institutions in place. And that's kind of the big question here is whether what the president did was legitimate and is sort of a roadblock in this democratic rebuilding process or is the slide toward more authoritarianism. Yeah, I think it's important to understand the political divisions that underpin this because it wasn't just the president was mad about COVID handling, right? To my read of it, that's almost more of a pretext, though there was widespread public discontent with the prime minister's handling of COVID, and so that that gave the president some more legitimacy to act. But rather, it's a, it's a reflection of deep political divisions inside the country and, and mistrusts between different factions. So uh, the leading party in parliament right now is the Endahada Party, which is an Islamist faction. And they've been the most popular. Again, we're talking pluralities, not majorities. There are lots of different parties, but they've been the most popular party in Tunisia since the revolution. And this is a pretty typical pattern in post-revolution Arab states because the uh, Islamist parties tend to be more organized than other ones and, and have a you know a stronger and, and easier to appeal to base, at least immediately after the transition. So they, they do pretty well. You saw this in Egypt too, right after the, the revolution in 2011 that ended pretty quickly. And the, the president, by contrast, is quite skeptical of Islamism and is more of a secularist and, and fits with Tunisia's general national self-interest somewhat anomalously as a, like a secular country. Right, as, as one that doesn't have much of a place for Islam in public life. And so while Ennahada is a very moderate Islamist party, right, and they've shown, at least for the past 10 years, evidence that they've been willing to abide by the rules of democratic politics and not uh, use democracy as a means for destroying itself, right, and turning the state into an Islamist authoritarian government a la Iran, uh, the president is still suspicious of the Islamist presence in parliament. So it's easy to read this, at least to me, as a kind of hardline secularist statement that they've gotten kind of tired of the presence of Islamists in uh, in Tunisia's government. That's not the only factor, obviously, but I think it's a really important one to understanding what's going on. Yeah, Zach, I think that's right. And it's also important to note that just recently, you know, there's kind of an announcement about this investigation into potential corruption and allegations against Nahda and 
uh, another um, party. Oh, you're just going to show me up by pronouncing the Arabic properly. I was going to stop and like, I was going to stop and like tell you how to do it. But then I was like, you don't need to do that. It's okay. That's close enough. And (laughs) sorry. Um, I tried. I tried. Okay. It's okay. I can do Hebrew words. I can do Spanish (laughs) words. I just. It's fine. Arabic is not not a language I've studied. We speak different languages. I, it's fine. (laughs) Um, It's anahda. Um, The ha sound is uh, just friendly Arabic lesson for the day. Um, imagine you're like fogging up your glasses to like clean them off. And so it's that sound. That's the H in the middle. So it's inahda. Oh, okay. So it's inahda. Anyway. Um, that's actually helpful given the amount of times that I've had to fog up my glasses to clean right. them. Right. And the amount of times that you probably have to pronounce Arabic words on this show. So. No, that's true. That's true. Friendly, helpful tip from your from your local Arabic speaker. Um, so yeah, you know, there, like I said, there's this uh, announcement just recently like in the last couple of days, that there was going to be um, this investigation, or there was an investigation under underway into corruption against um, by Inahda and and another party in Parliament, and so there was kind of this thought that like, oh, is this you know this crackdown on corruption um, that Said was talking about, and then the judiciary, which you know the constitutional court, like we said, is not fully kind of constituted, but the judiciary in general is thought to be fairly independent in Tunisia generally speaking. And so they actually kind of came out and said, no, this was going on for a while. You know, we, this started a few days ago before all of this happened. And there are allegations, you know, unproven. I, I don't know the details yet. They're clearly just like looking into it. But allegations that Inahda and, and the other party maybe took foreign donations during the most recent election. So I think when, when Kais Said, you know, has this point about corruption and about popular anger, like Jen said, like there was there were massive protests on the streets calling for the prime minister to step down and calling on the president to get rid of him. So when Kaisai did this with, you know, the thought at least that he had a popular mandate and then Nahda and its supporters and other opposition kind of came out and sent their supporters into the street to counter protest to their kind of credit, I guess. And Nahda has since kind of pulled back and said, we want to have dialogue um, you know, we want to call for calm. I do think so far it seems that everyone is really trying to like hope that, you know, democracy goes forward and really try to figure out a way through this crisis. But I think what's really interesting, and Jen, I'd love for you to talk more about this um, because this is, you know, something that came up in your interview, that people in Tunisia, many people, especially the, the supporters of the president, are maybe not super 100% sold on democracy as like the end-all, be-all answer, the absolute thing worth fighting for, and are maybe more interested in, you know, understandably, like having a government that's functional and that provides economic opportunity and healthcare and deals with COVID. Do you want to talk more about that? Yeah, and I think this kind of combines uh, what you were just saying and what Zach was saying about these underlying tensions between the Islamists and the secular side of government and sort of Tunisia's attempt to sort of figure out its democracy on its own terms. So to sort of like fast forward to how we kind of got here, of course, we know the Arab Spring started in Tunisia with a fruit seller setting himself on fire, protesting corruption and sort of spread. But in Tunisia itself, the Jasmine Revolution created this sort of opening to democracy by basically taking down the authoritarian leader at the time, President Ben Ali. And so, as Zach had said, Tunisia had really prided itself despite maybe having an authoritarian government on sort of the secular type of government that even though people in Tunisia identified as Muslim, it wasn't part of the government. And in the 
kind of transition to democracy that changed with the Anada party and others sort of taking a role in government that they necessarily had before. So this tension is very much still existing. So that's sort of one there. And so with that tension, you've had increased polarization between those who really want to see a secular government and all the kind of scales on that and those who want to see a more role for the Islamists in government. So uh, as Zach said, Anahata is more of a moderate party, but now you also have more extreme groups kind of coming on the other side who want to see an even greater role for politicalism. And on the other side, the more secular side, of course, you have the President Saeed, who is an independent. He was an outsider, a bit of a populist. But you also have these parties who are kind of in parliament and openly trying to call for the return of some sort of authoritarian rule. Basically, they're saying like, yeah, we we don't want democracy anymore because it's not working out for us. It hasn't delivered on the economic promise, the promise of prosperity. And it's sort of, you know, kind of arguing that democracy is failing. The, the system of government in place is failing. And that is sort of the underpinnings of some of these protests and why you've seen people who are cheering the president because they want someone to act and take control. And there is a sense of we've been having national dialogues and we've been having parties change power. Nobody has really figured it out. So maybe there's somebody who can make it so that I can afford my food and who I can go back to work and so I can get a coronavirus vaccine. And so that tension which again plays out on sort of not perfectly, but sort of Islamist and secular section is also playing out in sort of the vision of the government that Tunisia might want. Do we want a more of a strongman type government that at least will purportedly or at least say they're going to take our concerns into consideration and deliver? Or do we want to go through this kind of messy, divided government process that seems to sort of be stuck in a stalemate? Yeah. And I think, you know, for, for Americans uh, who, you know, we live in a very ostensibly stable, consolidated democracy, right? Like we have had democracy for a couple hundred years. And I think, you know, I as an American can relate to the frustration of divided government, of Congress not being able to act on like all sorts of things. We're like, could you just please like, could you guys fix like immigration and healthcare, like all these other issues? And, you know, they're even, you know, fighting about infrastructure. And there's that frustration that like this divided government Yes, we we love democracy, and yes, we want people to have a say in their own government, but at the same time, I get it, right? Like, it's frustrating when the government doesn't do anything because they're just, there's so much infighting, so many sides have power that you can't, nobody can move, right? And so I get that. I, I think Americans can kind of understand that in a kind of visceral level. Um, and at the same time, you know, it, it's, you know, it's not to me just fault, Right. But their democracy is very new. And so it's not like it has that kind of built in, you know, this is the one thing that you need to fight for always. This is like the founding of our country, right? Like it's very new there because they had an authoritarian leader for a very long time. And it's understandable to have that frustration. Um, and, you know, the comparisons to Egypt are, are really apt, I think. Um, you know, remember when when Mohammed Bouazizi, the, the fruit seller, self-immolated and kicked off the Arab Spring, you know, that's not the first time that protests like that have happened. They've happened in Egypt as well. And there's a lot of kind of frustration that that the police and that the government were just overwhelmingly controlling and, and cracking down on the poor and the working class were just trying to make a living. And these these vendors, right, like Bouazizi was, and they're, you know, still there in Tunisia, we're like, we're just trying to make a living. And there's all this like bureaucratic red tape and just authoritarian kind of, you know, rules that didn't make any sense. And you had to pay off, 
so-and-so local authority just to be able to operate. And there was no, like, rule of law. And they were really frustrated because they just wanted to survive and have a basic living. And so the spark of democracy, quite literally, promised that. But here we are a decade later, and they're still really frustrated that this hasn't happened. You know, it's a different kind of gridlock where they can't get through and can't get anything done. And at the same time, they're still stuck in the same position. And so, you know, you've seen Kai Saeed just in, in the last day or two give a message to the merchants specifically and say, look, everyone keep your prices down. We don't want people jacking up their prices and trying to take advantage of this. We're going to get this economy going. This government has made bad economic decisions before and poor choices. And so we're going to get this fixed. So he's, you know, very clearly trying to at least show whether he's genuine or not, show that he is trying to address these very specific kind of economic issues that people are really angry about. I mean, obviously the acute circumstances of the coronavirus make this a lot worse, right? right? Like when you have not only a not particularly advanced vaccination campaign, but the widespread immiseration associated globally with a pandemic, you're going to have a lot more people at least in theory, questioning the nature of the government. And it's if you have these longstanding grievances about poor economic performance or limited or not as good as promised economic performance, then yeah, I can I can see why that would lead you to start thinking like maybe this whole political model has been a mistake. But the, the stakes of this conflict are really high, both in Tunisia and regionally, right? If Said is as president moves forward with what might properly be termed an auto-coup, which is a term in the political science literature for when it's not the military seizing power from civilian leaders, but a civilian leader who is already in power claiming more power for typically himself. Yeah, uh, self-coup. Sort of declaring it. Yeah, self-coup is, is the term, right? If that's really what's happening here, and it's not yet clear that it is, but it certainly could be. If that's what's happening here, then, you know— I, it's the end of Tunisian democracy if he does stand himself up as, as the dictator, right? That, that's what we're talking about here. And if this really has arisen, not only out of these economic concerns that we were just talking about, but also an underlying irresolvable tension between the forces of secularism and the forces of political Islam in the country, then a narrative that has been pushed by other Middle Eastern powers, like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, that Islamism of a certain sort, right? It's, it's important to be careful there because the Saudi government could properly be termed Islamist in certain senses, but they also don't like kind of bottom-up Islamist movements like the Muslim Brotherhood. Specifically the, the um, Muslim Brotherhood-affiliated political Islam project. Yeah. Right. Uh, that these forces are too dangerous and need to be repressed and can't be tolerated and they make democracy impossible in the Arab context. And then you've got the the sort of flip side narrative, which has been pushed by Qatar in part, that these groups are really important and vital and that these other guys are going after them. Uh, there's a real split inside the sort of Gulf monarchy world on the question of how to think about the Muslim Brotherhood. And this could end up being a vindication for the Saudi-UAE line, uh, which would not be great for the prospects of democracy, like, region-wide. Uh, and so it, it th- what happens in Tunisia doesn't just stay in Tunisia, right? The significance for the broader region. There's a good piece by uh, Hussein Ibish in, in Bloomberg about this that is worth reading. But it's, it's, it's a really, really, really important region-wide struggle. Yeah, I just want to kind of elaborate on that a little bit because, you know, I agree. Um, there have long been, for literal centuries, 
conversations about the role of of Islam in in politics and in more recent eras, uh, specifically the role of Islam in democracy. And, and, you know, can there be a way to merge the two and to have, you know, an Islamist democracy that still operates under the principles, uh, you know, or Islamic values, but still holds to the cornerstones of, of democratic principles, lower D democratic liberal principles. And like you were saying, like this was a big test. Um, we had in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood candidate was elected and then failed to turn around Egypt's economy very quickly and failed to kind of get the security situation post-revolution under control. And the current leader, Sisi, came in and did a coup and he's in power and has been in power ever since. So it was like this one year that this this Islamist party had a chance to kind of maybe try to to govern. And, and Nahda has had a much longer kind of chance. And it was very much seen as a test of like, how would an Islamist party that is, you know, they have since distanced themselves from the Muslim Brotherhood kind of broader organization, but much of their political project and outlook is still very much based on, you know, the long history and kind of understanding of the Muslim Brotherhood project of what political Islam looks like in terms of, you know, social services and, you know, specific kind of ways that Islam is is kind of integrated into government structures. And they, you know, they were lauded, you know, Rashid Ghanoushi, uh, the head of the party, was lauded for when they lost power for like stepping stepping aside and saying, okay, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll follow democratic principles. And that was like a huge deal. A lot of people around the world were watching. They were like, oh, cool. Like, yeah, this Islamist party is like part of this functioning democracy. Like that's, that's rad. Like it's nice to see that. And so, like you said, like the, the challenge here is that if this ends up being the death knell of democracy and if the Muslim Brotherhood affiliated party, if Inahda um, and, you know, other Islamists are pushed out of power, then again, you're going to kind of see this really, you know, broader frustration that also kind of bred more, you know, extremist parties on the fringes saying, look, you know, these authoritarian leaders are, are you know, these secularists are against Islam and they won't let us even try to govern. So maybe we need to take tougher action. And to be fair, like, Inahda, like, they were thrown in jail and, you know, imprisoned and tortured under Ben Ali. So, you know, just like the Muslim Brotherhood affiliated parties were uh, across the Arab world. So it's a really big test, not just for democracy, but for political Islam as a feature of, you know, a modern democratic state in the Arab world. So it's really, really important to see where this goes. And again, you know, to their credit, and Hada has stepped back a little bit right now and is saying, look, we, we don't want to like flood the streets. We don't want to have a civil war here. Like we're just trying to Let's let's have a dialogue. Let's figure out a way to, to move past this. And the big question is whether Qais Saeed will go for that and actually allow them to continue to be part of the government. I think that's the big question right now, because to flatten the narrative and say, you know, the Arab Spring happened and then this democracy emerged and everything has been smooth sailing <laughs> since then until now would be completely false. It has been like a complete ping ponging of the Tunisian democratic experiment being on the brink and being pulled back. And one of the reasons it sort of survived was because, as you said, like Anahla had kind of bought into the peaceful transition of power. 
in, I think, 2013, when the democracy was really falling apart, they had worked with an interim government and a bunch of civil society groups, which were known as the Tunisian National Dialogue Quartet, which actually won the Nobel Peace Prize and sort of helped to reestablish the democracy. But since then, there's been protests, there's been assassinations, there's been all kinds of things that have sort of tested the Tunisian democracy. And so the question is, is this going to be another test? And then Tunisia can work, they can have the national dialogue, the groups can get together, they can figure it out, or is this going to be the thing that tips it over the edge? And the question really, I think, depends on the president because he has had these authoritarian tendencies even before the actions that he took over the weekend that make it seem a little bit more precarious than perhaps even it had in the past. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what's happening in Tunisia in broader context, both compared to other democratic countries, young democracies in transition, and in the context of the international response to what's going on in Tunisia. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows, and they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. And we are back. Uh, I hope you enjoyed my uh, dulcet advertising tones, worldly listeners. But uh, we're talking in our actual episode about what's going on in Tunisia and the the recent move by the president to consolidate power in his own hands at the expense of parliament. To me, this isn't just, you know, reminiscent of other Arab Spring countries, most notably Egypt, which is the parallel often drawn in these conversations, but sort of more generally patterns in young democracies. There, there are lots of different factors in, in the academic literature that have been identified as predictive of a democracy's success after a transition or a revolution. And what are they, Zach? <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> One of the big ones is income, uh, which, you know, is is not sort of what I'm I'm thinking about in the immediate context in Tunisia, so much as uh, a sort of broader structural problem you have in these conditions, which is that the mechanisms for establishing trust between the different factions. Because right? when you have a history of authoritarianism, in a country, you have a history of political disputes being settled by force. Right. And one side winning, meaning the other side gets, as, as Jen was talking about just before the break, arrested and tortured and thrown in jail. Like, the stakes of politics are existential. And like, part of the point and the purpose of democracy is to de-escalate these kinds of conflicts, to make it seem like losing does not mean that you die or go to jail or lose your livelihood. And... In Tunisia right now, my concern is that you spiral into the mistrust that people had and the sense of existential stakes in politics that existed, you know, just 10 years ago under the dictatorship. And you lose the fragile sense that it's okay if the other guy wins sometimes, yeah. right, that you need for a democracy to function. And that's what sort of the long-term ramifications of this could be, right? And undermining, even if there's some kind of like handover back to parliament of power, you could end up seeing a situation where different factions no longer trust each other to wield the power of the presidency with restraint. And that can create long-term trust problems that undermine the foundations of the democratic system. Right? This is not an uncommon phenomenon. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think the issue of you have to make it be okay with the other party, uh, the other side or another side in a multi-party democracy like Tunisia's is um, being in power sometimes. And that also kind of on the flip side requires the person or party in power to agree to hand over said power when it's time to give it up or to resist the urge you know, especially when you've been in an authoritarian system for so long to resist the urge to go, well, that guy, that last guy had a, had a pretty sweet gig, uh, you know, amassing all this power and money and and all of that. Uh, what if I just did that? You know, you have to have leaders who actually literally put pluralism and democracy over their own interests. And that can be difficult for, especially for, you know, people who have been in the political system for a long time and who kind of have seen that system and that's how politics works in in this system, right? Is you just amass power and that's how it goes. And so in Tunisia, we saw that, like we we said with with Ganushi, um, but also with a, another leader, literally choose to put democracy and pluralism ahead of their own political interests and actually say, okay, we're gonna step back and we're gonna allow us to not be in power for a little while because we're going to put our faith in this pluralism and this consensus democracy, we're going to have this, you know, this is this is a system we're going to try. And the question is whether Saeed is going to be committed to that now as well, or whether, you know, again, I just want to be clear, we don't know yet. It's This is still happening right now. Right. And like even experts, when you ask them, they're like, we don't know. We're just going to watch the president and see what he does. Like, he, it's kind of all down to him right now. And he could choose to just keep amassing power and rely on the military, which he seems to have the support of. He sent them to surround the parliament. Or he could do what previous, you know, leaders in Tunisia have done it and go, okay, I'm stepping back. I just did this for a temporary thing. And, you know, maybe he's true to his word. We don't know. And so I think that's what really matters. And that's what's really, I think, frustrating and scary in in young democracies is that you have to have faith in individual politicians, which... (laughs) Having faith in any politician, to be fair, difficult, difficult to do, uh, I would say, especially if you've lived in an authoritarian system. And just everybody's kind of holding their breath and going, I hope this guy supports democracy. I don't know. And it's really scary. And then you also have the the uncertainty of what comes next, I think, is part of why you're seeing a kind of stilted reaction internationally to the events on the ground, because nobody really knows. And I think particularly the United States and some of our partners are reluctant to tip the scales one way or another because, A, the hope is that Tunisia can work this out, that in the transition to become a democracy in the democratization process, this is something, the growing pains that they're going to have to go through. And if they can get it together, then that would be great. But Tunisia is also a really important partner geographically uh, for security reasons, particularly to the United States. And if they were to come out and call this a coup, that has some pretty serious implications for U.S. foreign policy, for Tunisia's foreign policy, for any potential financial aid that we might give it. Secretary of State Blinken basically had a little bit of a, I don't know if it was a faux pas quite that, but he basically tweeted that he had a good conversation with President Saeed and, you know, he supports democracy. And then he sort of had to walk it back or add more to that by saying, you know, we want democracy to flourish in Tunisia and we support it, but like not really kind of coming down or condemning on either side. And you see this sort of almost frozen position from the rest of the world to be like, uh, we don't really know what to do. And like, fingers crossed, hope everything works out. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, honestly, in some ways, I think that is a good response. If the hesitance is about hoping that Tunisia has to work this out for itself and that these are the kinds of growing pains that you need to go through in order to build democracy, having, you know, foreign powers like the U.S. or France, you know, Tunisia's former colonial power, France is obviously the other big player here in terms of weighing in or taking action, having them like come in and force something or, you know, try to force democracy, like that's not a good way, I think we've seen historically, to get people to buy into democracy or to get democracy to hold together, right? Like you need the people themselves, the parties at play, you know, the ones with power to be themselves bought in. You can't just impose democracy from the outside, again, as we've seen historically. And so I think in some ways it's it's responsible for foreign powers to maybe kind of take a back seat and go like, let's just see what happens. There have been calls for, you know, more forceful statements from the U.S. But again, you know, for me, I think one, like I said, it's it's too early to even know what's really going to happen. And the you know, initial statement saying we support democratic principles, we hope that Tunisia holds to those. You know, I think there could potentially be a role if things start to turn poorly of like, helping maybe foster like dialogues. I think there it, there are some ways, I don't think foreign intervention or interference is always like horrible and negative. There are ways that that foreign groups, foreign countries or, or you know, international organizations that are not tied to foreign countries, like NGOs, to play a positive role here. But I think like civil society in Tunisia needs to be the one to, to take action here. And I think it's probably a good thing that the US and France aren't trying to impose some kind of really strict ultimatum you know, do this X, Y, Z policy or else. It seems like allowing another country to handle its own business seems like a positive development. So far, we'll see. I think it's worth dividing the possible international responses. And this picks up on, on some of the things that you just said, Jen, but I want to systematize it a little bit. Let's do it. I right? love Into systematizing three, things. Three, sort of three different buckets, right? Like the first one is some kind of coercion aimed at changing the politics on the ground by forcing one side. Uh, in this case, it would be the president to give up his powers through like sanctions or something, some kind of coercive mechanism. Uh, and that I think that has a pretty poor track record, right? <laughs> in part because what you're what you're doing not just is like forcible regime change a la Iraq, but you're trying to use something short of military force to convince a government to give up on something that's like a fundamental objective to their survival and their willingness to stay in power, right? Like you've, the U.S. has been spectacularly unsuccessful at trying to sanction Iran into giving up on being an Islamic Republic, right? It's like, it's not going to work <laughs> good, good because the incentives, right? The incentives, that, that appeared to at times be the aims of U.S. sanction right. policy. It's debatable as to whether that's what the goal was, but that was in part the thing, right? And so, so, Coercing like a real major shift when the stakes are so high seems unlikely to me. But then there's sort of a, a sort of second way to think about coercion and something like sanctions or statements of frustration or anger, something short of sanctions that shows that the West is real mad at you. Right. And part of that is that could be used for more limited objectives, right? Like you want to release somebody from prison or stop a specific act of repression. And that seems more doable. And, and so does using those as a, as a signaling mechanism, right? Of saying, we don't like this behavior. We do not tolerate it. We do not condone it. And other people in other countries should take note that this will meet with some kind of punishment. Uh, I think those have 
there, there's value to using coercive tools along those lines. Whether or not they're called for yet in Tunisia, I think is not clear. Like I'm not, I'm not willing to say like we need to do X policy to prevent Said from doing Y thing because I'm not clear exactly what what the Y thing could be, right? Like what he's going to do next. Right? We've talked about this at length. In this Just podcast. To, to jump in quickly before we get to the C bucket. Yes, the C um, buckets. <laughs> C buckets. Just to kind of put a, a little finer point on it, when I was talking earlier about you want the person in power to be willing to potentially give up power rather than choosing to amass said power and the potential financial windfall that comes from being in power. And I think that's where threats of not sanctions, but withdrawing U.S. financial support and, and Western financial support, which has been significant in part to encourage democracy, like, oh, okay, we're going to help you guys. Like, yeah, this is great. Uh, let's hear some, you know, financial assistance to try to make sure that this thing happens. Um, threatening to pull that could actually just raise the stakes, like personally for Saeed, of pursuing that path. So I think there are very specific ways that you're right that 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 could be effective down the line. Anyway, see bucket. Yeah, no, the, no. The last thing I wanted to talk about is a point that you made about the less coercive and more constructive role that international actors can play, which is in fostering dialogue, yeah. right? And it's not just getting people to chat. It's helping overcome the problem that I was talking about at the beginning of the segment of a lack of trust between different groups, right? The reason that we do international relations, right, sponsored negotiations, like you have the U.S. brokering talks between Israelis and Palestinians, for example, or U.N.-led summits or five-party talks, in various different circumstances, is that the two principal actors who you're trying to get to come to an agreement don't trust each other enough to negotiate on their own. And if they do, talks will fail, right? They will air irreconcilable grievances, go down rabbit holes that lead to no constructive solution, try to litigate, you know, 500 years of history or whatever, right. depending on, on circumstance, right? So you need some kind of international broker who both sides trust to help overcome the deficit and trust between the two sides. And that role is harder to play when you're also trying to coerce one side into doing something. So it makes sense to me that some foreign powers are keeping a sort of wait-and-see stance because it may be valuable for them to be able to broker these talks, if that's necessary, between different domestic factions inside Tunisia to get them to be like, look, you all can coexist inside a democratic framework. You can talk about this. I, I'm not saying we're close to uh, a situation where a conflict that requires international mediation is happening, just that I imagine that this is the kind of thing that people in Paris and, and Washington are thinking about right now and are taking very seriously as a potential area in which they can assist in preserving and protecting Tunisian democracy. And I think it's, a as both of you said, I mean, Tunisia has a pretty strong civil society. It got to this point because of its civil society. Right. So we don't necessarily need the United States, uh, which I don't know how right. its civil society is doing these days, but <laughs> I don't think it's doing that we've great. We've seen better days. Um, we've seen better days. <laughs> yeah, we've seen better days to intercede and say this is how it's done. And I think the wait and see mode can be frustrating because this does not really sit quite right in sort of the larger Biden foreign policy, pro-democracy agenda, because, you know, president firing people, taking power, it's it's a little uncomfortable. But at the same time, I do think there is the value in sort of trying to maybe what sounds like a little bit of, um, I don't want to say platitudes, because obviously we do want to support political dialogue and those are values. But 
I'm not coming out with a side can feel a little bit uncomfortable in this context, but I think if we look at Tunisia specifically, it makes sense a little bit of why there's been some hesitancy on the, the part of some foreign powers to, to, to get involved. So we're going to leave it there. I want to thank our producer, Sophie Lalonde, for all of her hard work as usual. And, you know, go rate, subscribe, and review Worldly at all of your different podcast spots. I'm not going to list them all. We've really done this a lot of times, folks. Maybe I'll do it again next week. But right now, I'm feeling like I need more coffee, and that's where I'm going to leave you. Uh, Have a great week. We will see you again next week, where I will be coming to you from another, a distinct, undisclosed location in Canada. (laughs) Different place. But it is still in Canada. Oh, so yeah, that's, by the way, shout out to to Worldly Canadian listeners. If any of you want to write in and, and say hi while I'm here, please do. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Do 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 too high the levels are. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> levels. <laughs> and then Jen quietly going, testing, testing. <laughs> like, like, a, like, like a reasonable human being. <laughs> the two of us being just complete freaks of nature shouting into the microphone. <laughs> oh, well.